All right. Welcome to the podcast. I am sober. I am a heathen. I am the sober heathen, Scott. I'm glad that uh, you are listening today. Uh, Another guest show should be a good one. They've all been good. These are better than me just sitting here blabbing my mouth. I can tell you that. Um, Today, we got Anthony. He's coming from uh, British Columbia, right, Anthony? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Heck yeah. So, Get our uh, our neighbors to the north coming in and, and talking on the podcast. Uh, I'm not going to talk much uh, here in the beginning. I'm going to let Andy take the wheel, and we'll just kind of have a conversation. Two people in recovery, two heathens in recovery. This is pretty cool. Pretty excited to have a fellow heathen on the on the podcast. So, Anthony, welcome. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Yeah, Scott, it's good to be on the show. Um, I saw I found your podcast on uh, on one of the groups there about uh, heathens and recovery. And uh, I was like, I have to, I have to meet this guy. <laughs> I have to meet another guy following the same path that I'm on. And uh, no, it was really cool to find you and listen to your experience, strength and hope. And that's what I'm going to touch on today is my own experience, strength and hope. Uh, and hopefully people get something out of it. So, yeah, my experience with addiction is a, is a long and windy road. Um, I think like most of us, uh, we came into contact with uh addiction much earlier than uh than the substances that came out right so for me it came from a fundamental place of not understanding myself and uh who i was growing up as a child you know um my home had problems like everyone else's homes have problems and it was uh it was different right we did this thing in my treatment center i treatment's part of my journey i went to uh cedars at cobble hill that's uh, here on Vancouver Island, a really great place. Highly recommended if you're in British Columbia and looking for treatment or anywhere in Canada for that matter. Um, I did this thing called a life tapestry. We did it in place of a step four and five. So that broke down my life into small chunks. And we went through um, like what was going on for me, what were my questions about the world and what was going on around me that kind of influenced my life. And going through that, I realized that I had started escaping reality by age nine. So by age 12, I was into substances and drinking, and I was a full-blown addict by the time I was 16. So I was riding this uh, this battle with alcohol for the last 20-some-odd years, yeah. Yeah, before I finally, uh, you know, it beat me. It really did beat me. Um, <laughs> I tried recovery once earlier in 2021, I would say, early 2022. But uh, I had about four months and then I went out because I wasn't working my program. And I, you know, I thought I'd run my own show. You know, I'm working a 12 step program right now, uh, but uh, what had happened was I had been partying it up on my relapse or been partying it up. And then uh, my second ex-wife found me on the floor my apartment when she came to drop off my son. So that was uh, not a good scene at all. She woke me up, took my kid away and uh, said I needed help. So I started going to AA because I didn't know what else to do. Um, was afraid of the God word like everyone else. Uh, saw step one, saw how it works, didn't listen to anything in the rooms. I was just showing up and staying abstinent, right? And we, we know now like where we're at in our journeys that just showing up and staying abs- abstinent is not... Uh, is not the way to do it. So uh, I ended up going out again about four or five months into that uh, 
period of abstinence. And when I went back out, it was just as bad, if not worse than when, uh, when I had come in in the first place, like your body doesn't forget where you're at in, uh, in your addiction, right? Neurochemically, it's proven that, um, um, when your body anticipates your addiction coming on, it'll start dumping, uh, the anti-dopamine basically neurotransmitter, but it just remembers the previous setting it was set on. So if it was set on high, um, it's going to start dumping it in on high. Yeah. I like that. I like the previous settings. You, you got the preset. Yeah. I like that being a nerd that, that resonates with me a little bit. Yeah. It does yeah. not forget. Yep. No, it doesn't forget. And I was just as bad on my second relapse or in that relapse as I was when I went out in the first place, it was, um, pretty epic. You know, it started with a, a little slips like, Hey, I've got four months. I've got this drink thing under control. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'll just get a, I'll just get a Mickey. And then I'll get a, that, that Mickey turned into a two six and the next, like this is over a course of a, a week, maybe one Mickey, two Mickey, two six, another two six, two six, that dealer, <laughs> four beer, two, two fours of beer, calling the dealer every night up for days, like just out of control, out of control. And it was in the middle of that. I like, I stopped going to work. People were calling me. I was like, what's going on with you? It's like, oh, I had a slip. I'm just talking to my counselors. You know, I'm okay. I just need to take some time off. And no, I was just right into it. I was lying to my counselor. I was lying to my bosses at work. I was lying to my baby mama. It's just about where I was at. And then, yeah, eventually I was like, I need to go to fucking treatment. There's, there's no choice here. There's something I'm not dealing with. And uh, yeah. It, I thought it was just the substances, but no, when, when you go to treatment, you start doing that deep digging, you find out that it's, it rarely is the substances. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Gabor Mate. Uh, he's a psychologist here from, or psychiatrist here from uh, Vancouver. Very famous. He does a lot of work around trauma, addiction, ADHD. Um, but uh, a lot of, in his work, he talks about it being like a hungry ghost that you're trying to feed with your addiction. And then he asked the question a lot of the time. It's like, don't ask why the substances ask why the pain. I like that. Uh, but, uh, sorry. I, I too jump around a little bit. We were talking a little bit before we started squirrel brained. Um, you, you'd said that you, uh, you told work that you had had a relapse and that you were talking with your counselor. So you were pretty open with your work. Yeah. Um, after my first, um, like I've been struggling for probably the year previously and I got counseled at work, like for, you know, missing days. And, and they're like, okay, you, you, we know you have a problem. Like, so after I started my recovery the first time, I was like, yeah, I got this under control. I'm going to take care of this. Everything's going to be good. So I was pretty open with them at the start. And then, uh, and then I relapsed and then I could, uh, there was that shame and that relapse that came back like, okay, I could do this by myself. I couldn't do this on my own. I couldn't run my own show. I couldn't stop on my own. That was that in- insanity piece that we talk about. Um, how many times did we say we were going to quit before we picked up the next day? Like I quit every time between beers. I quit yeah. every time between phone calls to the, to the dealer. Right. 
Yeah, and we were serious when we said it too. And and at least in my experience, I was I w- I meant it every time I said I was done. I meant it. Oh, but me it, too. Like I had yeah. lost my kids. I had lost my my relationships. Like, and I meant it. Like I wanted those things back. Yeah, but I couldn't uh, get them back. <laughs> yeah, you can't. I mean, and and you know, it's a there's a lot of selfishness going on in this disease. You you have the selfishness of um, that everybody sees that you know, you're given the appearance that you don't care. You know, you don't love your kids. You don't love your family. You love this, this substance more than that. And then you have to take that. And then you have to become selfish in another way in order to recover. Yeah. Um, the, the selfishness and recovery was something that I struggled with because, you know, giving up substances and the using and the drinking was, you know, just step one, but like, there were things that I hadn't dealt with in my relationships, like codependency issues and sure. uh, all that fun stuff that goes along with being a codependent. And, you know, I had trauma being a displaced dad for my second marriage, um, having my kid taken away at that time. And sure. that affected my relationship with my, with my youngest kid. And, you know, that stuff I didn't want to look at because it made me feel less than, it made me feel weak. It made me feel, you know, all the things we feel as men that we shouldn't be that that's what it that's what it became so i had the shame in my relapse and then the shame of asking for help and the guilt of not being able to show up you know as a father and as a man and that was that was rough that was fucking rough (laughs) sure man sure man and i think once we once we can swallow that pride like you did you know um and, and totally surrendering um you know it the last treatment I went to, uh, I worked there like a week before <laughs> I was a tech there. You know what I mean? And I knew what I had to do was I, if I'm going to surrender this thing, I have to own it. And, you know, I, I showed up and, uh, a lot of the guys that were in the treatment, they were like, Hey man, can you help me do this? And I'm like, uh, no, I'm actually in treatment now because okay. I relapsed. You know what I mean? So yeah, giving in step one, you mentioned it a couple of times. I think that's really huge. Um, it's if you don't do that one, you can't do any of them, right? I mean, that's if you're in AA for a half a second, that's the first thing you're going to say. You got to completely surrender. Yeah. And the experience of surrender that I finally got there, I remember it like it was, you know, like it was yesterday. It was such a cool feeling. Um, I woke up in the morning, like I always did in treatment. I think I was on my third week there. And then, but I felt serenity. Like I could only describe it as serenity. That that just peaceful, at ease feeling. You know, I had finished my de- detox. I had fucking started working with the counselors and got my programming sorted out. Went through that roller coaster of emotions that you have when you're when you're through there that you can't. It's kind of like the emotional hangover that you from stuffing down everything while you're using. Yeah. Once that all came out and. Um, it was out there. My story was out there. Everything was out there. My feelings were out there. I couldn't hide from it anymore. You know? And uh, once once I was done hiding from myself and I accepted that this is where I am, this is what I'm doing, that I got, that I found surrender. And like they talk about compliance and treatment versus surrender. Compliance is all about paying that lip service, going through the motions, like 
you know, you're going to abstain, but you're not working it. You're not doing the work. You're not, you know, you, you might've arrested it like you're using and you might've, you know, had a few years or a couple goes at it. You know what it's about. You think you know better, yeah. but you're not actually doing that work on yourself. And unless you're doing the work all the time, for me, it was like, yeah, without the work, I wasn't surrendering. It's yeah, I, say. No, no, right on, man. It's that, it's that ism from the, that I talked about in the previous, uh, in a previous podcast that, and you said it right away, um, right as right in the beginning, when you first started talking, you said you didn't know yourself as a kid. Um, you know, that was, that was pre alcohol, right? So that it, that ism, and I can relate to that totally. I didn't know who the hell I was. I was always trying to be somebody else. I was always trying to, you know, get these kids to like me and, and changing who I was because I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I was missing something, you know, I didn't know who I was. And I thought that was a great way you put that. Uh, I mean, perfectly. Um, Bill W in the, in, in AA says um, that alcohol is but a symptom, you know, so we're, we're using that and that's just a symptom of a bigger problem. And you've touched on that several times. We have to figure out the why, because just, just quitting drinking is not, doesn't do anything for anybody. I had a counselor, um, older dude, he's awesome. And uh, one of my favorite people on the planet and he quit drinking by going to AA, never went to treatment, but he quit drinking. And then eight years later, his wife left him. And he's like, what the, f- what the fuck? You know, I quit drinking. I'm going to AA. You know, I got the drinking under control and now you're leaving. Well, he didn't fix the actual problem. He, 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 you know, he got rid of the alcohol, but he didn't fix him and who he was and how he was behaving and, and going about things. Excuse me. Yeah, no, I, f- I feel that. I really do. Um, especially that first, after that first go and go, going into treatment. Um, but like when surrender came and I started doing the work and really examining all those parts of myself based around like how shame-based I was in my addiction, like my using and like my feelings of shame and con- wanting to control my environment to make myself safer. Those are all things I learned as a kid to keep myself safe emotionally. Sure but they no longer serve me as an adult. But unless I brought awareness and attention to those, like those coping mechanisms or those maladaptive uh, traits or whatever they wanted to call them in treatment, I can't remember right now, but, but uh, without actually looking at those things and how they weren't serving me and how they contributed to my powerlessness and unmanageability, I wasn't getting any better. Right. So when you, when you are open about these things and you're talking about it, do you feel like there's a huge weight lifted off your shoulders? Like you're not carrying this burden of secrets and, and, and shame. Is there like a, for you, is there like a physical lightness that you feel? Yeah, no, totally. Um, That physical lightness comes like, I was always walking around like with a chip on my shoulder, angry, pissed off. Um, just barking at everybody that crossed me the wrong way. And I felt heavy all the time. Like, like something was like, I was carrying on to like, they talk about the bag of rocks and resentments mm-hmm. for every resentment that you have. You can write it on a rock, put it in your pocket. And pretty soon you're going to realize that your pockets are full and you're being dragged down. Oh yeah, I was carrying around every single resentment that I had. 
And then everything that I could tie to an old resentment, I would create a new rock and I'd just chuck it in the bag because that felt like I was justified in the way I was feeling in that irritable state, you know, you talk about restless, irritable and discontent. I was justifying that with all these resentments, but finally, you know, when I, when I, when we talk about how it works, I, I like to describe it as how is just an acronym for honest, open and willing. Uh, if I'm not honest about how I'm feeling or what my story is or everything that I've been through, um, then I'm just lying to myself. If I'm not open to the program and the spiritual principles of the program, then I'm not going to receive the gifts. And if I'm not willing to do the work and the hard work on myself, then it's I'm going to go out again. Right. No, right. it's right. It's right there. How it works, and the fact that I ignored, you know, the first word and the first step of AA, we thinking I could do it by myself, you know, that, that was a recipe for failure as well. So it wasn't until I started doing that work and unburdening myself from all this, all the shame, guilt, and resentments that I had, um, that I, I couldn't feel that lightness, but I found it now. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, I find myself sleeping better with this lightness. I find myself waking up easier, you know, because you're not carrying those rocks around. Like you said, um, you're not carrying, you know, man, just not having to lie about every single thing, you know what I mean? Or, you know, just, it's so free. And I think that's why it's so important. Like, uh, and I'm going to jump around here again, because I'm just, I'm thinking about it. You had mentioned the spiritual part of the program. Okay. With both of us, uh, you know, recognizing ourselves or, or labeling whatever, I don't label is probably the wrong word, but I'm a heathen, you're a heathen, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. People are people hear spirituality and they think, oh, these guys, how, how are heathens spiritual? And I think, and you mentioned it too, the the God word in the in the in the meetings, you know, that was a little bit of a challenge because sometimes people do get preachy, and that's you know, take what you need and leave the rest, but. Um, there is a huge difference between religion and spirituality. They're, they're two completely different things. And I think some people have them so lumped together that when people in AA that are trying to, to tell them something important, kind of like you, you just said, the spiritual part of the program, they hear that and they click, you know, they, they shut down spiritual. I'm not spiritual. I'm not. So how did you reconcile the difference between those two? Well, just by recognizing that one, the the big book was written in the 30s and modern heathenry didn't even come wasn't even a thing on the radar back then and neither was the buddhist recovery principles and neither was a lot of the 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 new religious movements that we see getting prevalence uh, among modern day society today so he's just going with what he knew was right and what his experience was in the society that he was living in so for me it was just about you know, this is the God of my understanding or all the gods of my understanding. Sure. And, but the principles are the same. The spiritual principles are the same, you yeah. know, working the spirituality piece. Um, they talk about on wall variety. If you look at the medicine wheel, there's four key components on the medicine wheel that we have to take care of for ourselves. Right. There's the physical taking care of our physical bodies and our physical health. There's our mental making sure that our thinking's right. There's our emotional, making sure that we're feeling our feelings and not suppressing them and recognizing what our feelings are. But there's also the spiritual part. 
and your connection with your higher power. Um, so the way I relate well, priority and that medicine wheel to my spiritual program today is like, if I'm not taking care of one of those four quadrants, it's going to be like, I'm running on a flat tire and it's just going to make everything fucking harder. You know? <laughs> yep. So if my spiritual side is deflated, it's just going to be like, and just for sure chunking along. But um, just recognizing that, you know, everyone has their own religion or spiritual principle, which is fine. The, the steps talk about is of our understanding or my understanding, you get to pick, you get to pick what's your good orderly direction or you're growing or dying. Yeah. Like God is just the way the word we use to all link that all together. But what it means to you is, you know, your own. Yeah. Yeah. What helped me was I, I like acronyms and um, I came up with good observable decisions because that worked for me because what, what clicked for me was, you know, the only way you're going to prove to the people that you want back in your life is for them to see you change. Yeah. So, so I went with that acronym and that helped me, um, you know, and, and, and just to close it out on the, on the spiritual part, spiritual to me is going out and starting a bonfire at nine 30 at night by myself, even for 20 minutes, you know, under the clouds or the stars and just being at nature um, or with nature, that's spiritual to me. That's a spiritual connection that is, that is giving my, that spiritual connection. It's, it's giving energy to that. So it can be um, the important thing. I think for anybody that's hesitant on AA, it does say the God of your understanding. It does say, um, you know, um, as, as you understand it or him, and so it can be anything. And you and I have found our own way that is not traditional, um, the thirties big book, you know, belief system, but it can work. It can still work for anybody. I was, I was, uh, you know, I was an atheist for a while and I had some recovery, but it wasn't until I found something that gave me fulfillment and, and, and enjoyment by finding the, the gods that I now follow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, one note that I made here too, you said you had tried recovery. Um, I know for me, it took four treatments. Uh, I know for me, I was going uh, during the pandemic, I was going to the one day I went to nine uh, AA meetings and one day with my sponsor. Uh, but it ended up, it always ended up with me drinking in those meetings off camera. You know, I, so I consider myself, I wanted to stop and I was going to those meetings because I wanted to hear something that helped me stop. So I want to feel like that I was working toward recovery. Um, when you said you tried recovery, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Some things you did that didn't work or it was it just a lack of effort? hundred <laughs> percent. It was a lack of effort. Um, sure. but you know, I like what you said there. Um, you were really invoking the third tradition there. The only, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. Right. Um, and they had downgraded that from this, from, uh, I think they put sincere desire it was before they did the, the revision, but now it's just a, any desire is good enough for, to be a member. Right. Um, no, but trying recovery the first time was, you know, I knew I had to stop. I knew I had a drinking problem, but I wasn't willing to buy into the program. And I was just doing the bare minimum to appease people to keep them in my life. So I could still keep seeing my oldest at sure. the very least. Um, but not doing any of the work associated with it. You know, I didn't read my big book. I didn't, you know, 
I listened to the 12 and 12 that we studied, um, but I didn't know how to apply it. I never got a sponsor. I never talked to other men. I wasn't connecting with people, you know, because I was still very much shame-based and be like, oh, everything that I've done in my addiction, no one's going to no one's going to get it. And I was still very much centered on uh, the ism, right? Mm-hmm. I, self, and me. Yep. That, that egotistical part of myself where um, I just couldn't let that part of my, me go. I didn't want to. I didn't, like I wanted to stop drinking, but I didn't want to let that part go either. So that blocked me from actually achieving that state of surrender in, in the program. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I continually told myself that I needed to have alcohol to some extent to be the cool dad, to be the, um, I'll be quite honest, the better lover uh, with my with my female to, you know, to uh, be able to speak in online meetings. I needed a little bit of alcohol. I couldn't possibly give it up completely. You know, I would never be me again if I didn't give it up, or if I gave it up completely. Yeah. And I think, uh, it works for some people, but for, for when I was trying, um, that first go at recovery, I put myself on the marijuana maintenance plan. I tried that. (laughs) Yeah. So I was still using, uh, mind altered substances and, you know, the NA program talks about, uh, you know, any and all mind altered substances, but sure. Depends what program you're working that works for you in recovery as an individual, right? Like I know people who are very successful in the MMP, (laughs) you know, being sober. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it kept me stuck in anxiety and depression while I was trying to not work my program. Right. Sure. (laughs) But all it did for me was get me really stoned and really drunk because I, I just went back to the alcohol anyway. So I I remember doing meetings, my sponsor, you know, he tried, man, he tried, he would be on zoom with me all the time. He lives in a different state and I told him, you know, I think I'm going to try pot. And he's like, well, you know what? You're going to fucking die if you keep drinking the way you're drinking. So fine, you know, get some pot. So I'm sitting there doing meetings with him, smoking just, I mean, just nonstop. Yeah. <laughs> and, on a green out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and trying to get that for the green out. Right. <laughs> um, so, man, this is, uh, this has been pretty fun. Um Let's see. I'm checking my notes here. Uh, yeah. So it's something that kind of, and, and something that's uh, quite common is, um, did you have any experiences in thinking that, you know, I think every, every person struggling with substance use uh, disorder thinks they're the exception to the rule. Do you have any, uh, you know, do you have any, any, uh, for me, I'll give you an example for me. Uh, walking into AA the first time and I see these, these dudes and I'm like, Oh, I am not these old dudes. I am not these old guys. I am not like this. I go into treatment and I'm just judging people instantly by their physical appearance. Um, and I'm going to beat this. Yeah. Well, he couldn't fix, he couldn't stop drinking, but I'm not him. You know what I mean? Uh, do you recall those thoughts at all? Yeah, on my, on my first go around when I still held on to a lot of my judgments about other people and their using and how my war stories compared to the, their war stories, what they had lost versus what I had lost, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really have a lot of, you know, trouble where I worked. Um, so I was still succeeding in one area of my life. So I use, I hung on to that, like 
a fucking life preserver because yeah. I kept failing upward, kept getting promoted. Like, so that part of my life was going good. Meanwhile, I've got like three divorces under my belt, two kids that I barely know their dad is emotionally unavailable. And you know, he's always broke. Yeah. Dude. But I was good at my job. So I held on to that. Like, right. Like the last dying gaps of a fucking drowning man i mean you you will find anything to grasp onto man anything i did the exact same thing with my job i'm getting promotions you know this this company is going down and i just went and got hired and then another one for making more money clearly alcohol is not the problem you know with my you know in my marriage and the fat that i'm the fat i right there i said fat because that's what i was getting to i was like a blimp bloated up like a damn blimp you know, it clearly wasn't the alcohol. I just need to cut back on potato chips or something. It is just yeah. the insanity of this disease, the cutting baffling part of it. it. It will give you every excuse in the book. I, and I, I mentioned before, there was a time a good friend of mine said, dude, you're a functioning alcoholic. And you might as well put that on my badge, just like I'm in the Boy Scouts or, or uh, you know, in the military, you know, getting a rank. Like I wore that like. Hell yeah. I am a function alcoholic. I'm not my mom because I'm working every day and I'm, you know, just insane. Yeah. There was, there was a really old, um, the old culture in the military where I worked, there's a huge drinking culture and you could wear that functional alcoholic badge, like a badge of honor. You really could. Honestly, you're a part of like sure. this core group of guys that were, you know, all alcoholics, but we're all really good at our jobs and, and because we protected each other at work, if things got a little bit spicy or whatever else was going on, you know, it was, it was kind of acceptable. You know, the military had tried to threaten to send me to treatment since I was 20, you know, I'm, just, I'm turning 34 tomorrow. So it's 14 oh. years of them just tra- threatening to, you know, send me to treatment. And I was like, no, I'm good. It's, it's really my deployments. It's really um, everything else that's going on in my life. It's not the drinking. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, it, you know, it was everything else going on in my life, but I wasn't dealing with it. I was just masking it with the drinking. Yeah. Six and one half dozen of the other, right? Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. It'd be a lie if if it wasn't enticing to have that numbness at times. You know, um, happy birthday, uh, early birthday, by the way. Um, Thanks. (laughs) uh, You know, hitting six months last weekend. And that was followed by two days of just a shitstorm of emotions. I was just pissed off at everybody and everything for no reason. Um, and, and there was moment to, moments there where it's like, man, I just don't want to feel this shit anymore. You know, because you when I when I heard this, it was it was eye opening. It was like, you know, you feel better when you quit drinking. You're going to feel the anger better. You're going to feel the sadness better. You're going to feel the anxiety better. You're going to feel all these things more. And, you know, it's a gut punch in the beginning. Yeah. um, I had this psychiatrist uh, in treatment and he was like a super new age kind of dude. I was going off in his office like I was pissed, like 10 out of 10 pissed because I felt like he was ignoring a lot of the stuff I was talking about. I see what he was doing now. And I can kind of laugh about it, but like I'm just like shaking mad in his office, like just full on about to jump over his desk. And he's like, I can see that you're a little bit activated right now. I'm going to read you a poem. <laughs> so he read me this poem. And uh, it's called The Guest House by Rumi. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I've not. Um, 
it's really good but basically it talks about all of your feelings being a guest in your house like in and the house is your body right in your soul so your feelings are going to come in and you have to treat them like a guest and as a heathen uh, you know guest rights are important to me sure <laughs> even if they're fucking your shit up and you know tearing the place apart it's good to be a good host sure. but you have to recognize that those guests are going to leave just like your feelings are going to leave and if they tear your house down and take care of everything outside with you while well, they're just making room for something better to get moved into there. So that's kind of how I approach those, those feelings and kind of like a, a metaphorical kind of sense, but uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, is there, um, I've told the story about how I wore a t-shirt for pants to the gas station across the street from my house. You have any uh, fun stories that you look back at that were really bad that you can laugh at yourself now that you want to share? We don't have to save my war stories for another episode. Sure. Sure. But um, I've got tons of those stories and I can look back and laugh on them now. Sure. But at the same time, a lot of them are super sad and super tough to talk about still. Sure. Well, they don't have to talk about anything. You don't want to Uh, just, um, I do have a funny one I was actually talking about in uh, in my group earlier today. I've got the scar on my leg, um, right there. It's pretty. I went down to the bone on that, and I was in Singapore, and we were drinking at this place called uh, the Golden Mile, which is like the bus depot where people come in from Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia. Like we had seen all the touristy spots, and we had you know done the four floors of horrors or whatever, but. Um, uh, we went, we talked to this local guy and we were like, where do locals go drink here? Like, where's the scummiest, diviest place that locals go to drink? Because that's what we were interested in, you know? Um, and they brought us this like bus depot and there's like this weird little bar there and they got these, you know, it's like karaoke and there's like stages everywhere. So I went to go jump on the stage, but it must've been made out of glass or something because I just cut my ankle right open, just tore it. Right <laughs> open. I was bleeding everywhere. My pants were soaked in blood and I'm like, yeah, let's drink this tower of beer and just fucking have a great time. Last night in Singapore. Oh yeah. I was, I was during my dirty 30 and uh, three years ago. It was like one of the last good goes I had in addiction kind of, but uh, I also recognize the fact that I was going through a lot at the time too. And yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of stories like that from sure. that particular deployment, but uh, we can get in. We can get into most of those another time. Like sure. I'd like to come back on the show if you if you'd have me. And- Hell yeah! Well, and and I think uh, I, I want to do a panel show too, so we can have one of these days where I have you know four or six of us, and uh, we, we all get together beforehand and and pick some topics that we want to talk about, and it can it can be a conversation. Um, on our thoughts on different things, which leads me to, uh, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, just a couple, uh, couple more questions, uh, just to get your quick thoughts. Um, choice, choice and addiction. Is it a choice? Is it not a choice? Is it sometimes a choice? Is it, what are your thoughts on choice and addiction? Choice and addiction kind of has a couple parts to it. Um, some people will say that, you know, addiction is very much genetic and, you know, genetics has its role to play, I think, in addiction, but all genetics does is load the gun. Mm-hmm. Environment will pull the trigger. 
right? So sure. some people are predisposed to to become addicts and that's natural. That's part of the um, society and stuff. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the comorbidity, um, which means like if you have this one thing, you'll probably have this other thing with addiction and ADHD. How many percent of people with ADHD will have issues with substance use? It's upwards of 75%. Oh, wow. So just the fact that I was born with ADHD and I didn't get diagnosed until last year. Um, and that's only because my son, my oldest, he's got, he's got a pretty bad. Um, so now I, I, I can see these things and like, it's so, okay. Yeah. Now he's susceptible to, you know, getting like to be like his old man. So the more I like do the work and study these things and, you know, expand my knowledge base on it, you know, that, that part wasn't a choice. Um, picking up the first time, probably a choice. Picking up every other time to cope, not a choice. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I believe that we have a choice to some extent. And I like uh, your reference of, you know, the gun was already preloaded because of genetics. I like that. Um, but I think once it gets to a certain point, choice is no longer an option. Um, the day that I was supposed to pick up my son and take him to his baseball game. And I pulled into the driveway and his mom would always come out to make sure that I wasn't drunk. He comes out coming down the stairs with his bag, you know, and she took one look at me and was like, um, no. And, you know, he's the look on his face and she drugs him back, drag him back in the house and I have to take off. Um, I knew I had to pick him up. I knew days beforehand, I was excited to go to his game as usual. Um, and I didn't want to drink, but I, as Bill W. talks about, found myself pounding on the bar. How the hell did this happen again? <clears throat> and more often than not, I would I would make the decision to not do it. And then next thing I know, I'm a pint in. So at some point, it, the, the choice is taken away from us. Um, but it's being willing, and it's really hard to do, I think, uh, to be willing to examine the, those inner demons that, that, that you talked about, those things that you're dealing with as a child. So I think, you know, connection is the opposite of addiction. And even somebody that doesn't have an addiction, you know, even a younger child, to be willing to let your kid, you know, talk to you, to have that open communication. And even if it's hurtful to you, you just have to, I mean, to keep those lines Everybody needs an outlet, man. And if you don't have an outlet to talk to somebody about it, you're going to turn to something that's going to make it feel better one way or another. And yeah, hundred percent agree with that. Sure. Agree with that. So we'll, we'll close it on this one. Um, so with your experience and what you've been through now, uh, somebody that is, they're either thinking that they're struggling with addiction or they know they are. Um, and they come to you for advice on what to do next. What would you tell that person that's struggling? Oh man. Um, if you're thinking about, if you think you have a problem, you probably have a problem. You're just lying to yourself. So sure. think about, think about why you're doing the things you're doing and sit with that for a while. And then see if you can, you know, be comfortable with that choice. Like, and after you're done doing that, Start doing some research. You know, what's your problem with? Is it with alcohol? Is it with Coke? Is it with codependency? Is it with, you know, trauma? What's what's going on underneath 
you're using and why you have to escape. And then once you have a better understanding of why, find a program that works for you. Sure. And there are about a million programs to help people get over different things, right? We have Wall Variety, we have AA, we have NA, we have CA. You know, if it ends up with an anonymous, I probably qualified for it, you know? Um, those are 12-step programs. We also have Smart Recovery. And Smart has is full of great tools that you can use not only for yeah. recovery, but for just day-to-day life, finding that work-life balance, finding that, you know, how to set a goal properly. Most people don't know how to set SMART goals. I was just talking about this uh, yesterday with uh, with my counselor, you know, um, short-term goals seem way harder. You know, I was, I was telling him, I'm 41. Turning 50 feels like it's right around the goddamn corner. But getting to that one year of sobriety feels like an eternity away. You know what I mean? And and getting the job and getting caught up on bills feels like an impossible thing to happen. But nine years from now, it feels right around the corner, you know, and uh, it's 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 ins- it's the insanity of the of the thought process, man. And I think you said it best. If you think you have a problem, you probably do. That's that's a pretty simple one. I think if, if you're if you're if you're far enough along that you're questioning it. You got to do something. But the thing that I think people need to realize is you got to think about all the effort that you put into your addiction. The how am I going to get it? How am I going to hide it? You know, what excuse am I going to make for missing this obligation? You have to put that amount of work into your program, whatever program that is. It can be any program. You have to put that amount of work in plus some in order to beat this thing. This is straight up. I mean, this this disease is trying to kill you. Okay, it's it's war. It wants you to die. <laughs> and if yeah. you're not willing to go to war and do things that are uncomfortable, like say, you know, talk about, you know, shitty things to somebody, you don't have to air it out to the world, but you gotta you gotta explore these things and, and where they're coming from. So yeah. Um so all right, I promise this is the last one because this is a follow-up of the last of uh, the previous question. Somebody that has a loved one that is like us that is struggling and this loved one is trying to help them. They don't know what to do. What would you say to their wife, to their kid, to their aunt, to their mom, their grandma, somebody comes to you and says, look, I know you went through this. You're doing so well. What do I do? What, what should I do? What can you tell me? Take care of yourself first and foremost, because if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be in any position to help them. And all I can do as a man in recovery is carry the message. I can't carry the addict. Sure. You have to recognize that it's it's one thing to, you know, be in recovery. It's another thing to pull yourself out of recovery. And if you're not doing it for yourself, you're not going to recover at the end of the day. So you need, I would talk to that person about boundaries and getting support for themselves. And once they are in a position to intercede, then maybe, but if they're not taking care of their self, themselves and dealing with their own issues, then they're not going to be in any position to help the, the person that's struggling. So that'd be sure. my advice to them. And there's programs for that too. You know, CODA, Al-Anon, yeah. uh, ECOA. Um, yeah. So yes. Definitely. Step one. Yep. I, I think the best thing is do step one. You're powerless over this situation. There's nothing that you can do to stop them. You can be there for them and support them, but, you have no power on whether they're going to quit or not. 
that's completely up to them. So absolutely. Cool, man. Uh, I don't, did you say uh, your sobriety time? Did you get to throw uh, that out be there? Down there at the bottom of the screen. Four oh, months, four months, nine days. Nine days. Yep. All right. Well, a lot of people listen to audio. So congratulations, four months and nine days, man. That's a huge accomplishment. Is this uh, your longest stretch? Or uh, not yet. I've got five more days and then I'll be my longest stretch. Dude. Congratulations, man. That is awesome. If I, I have a soundboard somewhere. I would have played the applause, but I'm not prepared. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. But um, the thing is like, I don't even want to compare it to my last stretch because I didn't have what I felt to be true sobriety. You know, right on, I was dude. but I wasn't sober. It just, it there's when you're ready, I know I can say now from my experience as well, it feel, you can feel it. Yeah. Like it was just all the other times for me. And I don't know if it's the same for you. I was just waiting for that opportunity to present itself, to give me any excuse to drink and, and, and to hide it again and, and try to put on this persona of, Oh, look at me. I'm in recovery. I was just waiting for that time. And this time I don't want it. It, it just, I don't know. There, there's, yeah, we've talked about like what sent me into that relapse, and that's uh, that's a pretty heavy conversation for me next time. But uh, yeah, no, I'd like to sh- I'd like to share my experience on that. Um, well, on I that some other time. Yeah, I, well, I'll tell you this: I've had more than one person tell me that when they listen to some of the podcasts, they 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 always get emotional. So I think emotion is a huge. You talked about that earlier too. You talked about uh, in Harbor Hall they call it the pies. Your physical and intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. You got to work on those four things. And um, oh, pie, yeah, that's the medicine wheel I was talking about. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The medicine wheel. Yep. And uh, I think uh, you know to to be vulnerable and to tell emotional stories where other people can hear that hurt. You know, we're we're not dwelling on it but we're not shutting the door on it. So we remember what the fuck we've been through um, to get that out there and to be vulnerable. I think that's huge. And, and even just to come on a podcast where, you know, I, it's, I, I don't have millions of people listening to it yet. Fingers crossed, but yeah. I have enough people that, you know, you think about if I don't know what the numbers are, but to, you know, if 10 people watch, how many people do those 10 people tell, you know, Hey, I heard this or that. So, you know, um and then they tell two friends and then they tell two friends and, yeah. so, and so on yeah. just, and even just one thing that can help somebody else get on the right path or and i think and it's equally as important to me that somebody who has somebody that they care about that's going through addiction if we can ease their mind i i know i know it's it's it, it's hard to watch somebody struggle and lay there on the couch or you know puke their guts out or, or find out they're in the hospital or whatever i, I that's still going to be painful but to to have that relief that, you know, there is hope, whether they're ready to accept, you know, the help or not yet, there is hope that it can happen at some point. And all you can do is love them and, and keep going and set your boundaries, you know, telling them no is still loving them. You know what I mean? I, it's okay to tell them no. And for the love of God, the one thing that I keep saying, if you have somebody that's in addiction, don't hand them cash ever. Oh, yeah. Just I made that go. mistake a few times since getting out of treatment. Like people would hit me up and be like, Hey, I need uh, this bill paid or that bill paid. And then I wouldn't even really think about it. I was like, I'm doing great. In my recovery. You know, I remember them from treatment. They were gr- They were good to me. So I had no problem opening my wallet. And then they kept coming back for more money. I'm like, 
okay no i i could see what's going on here now i felt really bad because i got taken for a ride in that way um yeah. you know more than once but like you know i was just wanted to help step 12 right yeah well and i wonder if you would have just paid that bill directly for them if they would have kept you know if they would have kept coming back that's what i'm saying like help them but just pay the bill or take them to the grocery store or you know what i mean people people that have loved ones in this thing they they can still help um but you don't hand them the money that they can then turn into you know drugs and alcohol yeah dude yeah so well anthony man this was awesome i definitely want to do it again if we can um really appreciate you man it's great to it's great to have a fellow heathen on the sober heathen your first one the first heathen to join me on here um anything uh else you want to throw out there before we uh part ways for today um just like and subscribe to this video help support my friend scott's channel and uh we'll see you next time (laughs) all right man Uh, this is awesome dude i there's we talked about the the dopamine that you get from use or whatever the dopamine's high right now i gotta go work out or something i gotta go do something because feels good doing this stuff so thanks again my friend and uh, we will stay in touch and we will do this again awesome i look forward to it man all right take care buddy you too scott bye, bye.